Kevin Murphy suggests that perhaps no historical figure better embodies the transatlantic circulation of people, ideas, and objects in the age of revolution than the Marquis de Lafayette. Known for his decisive contributions to the battles of Brandywine and Yorktown, as well as other operations of the American Revolution, Lafayette later went on to direct one of the most dramatic and emblematic gestures of the French Revolution, the demolition of the Bastille in July 1789. He understood the symbolic importance of destroying the prison's remains and would go on to send the purported key from its main door to George Washington, who hung that key in the hall at Mount Vernon, where it remains. During the course of his subsequent fall from political favor in France, when he alienated both right and left during the French Revolution, his confinement in an Austrian prison, and his return to public life during the Bourbon Restoration, Lafayette continued to be thought of by Americans as one of the founding fathers of the United States. Now eclipsed in the popular imagination by the other founders, during his lifetime, Lafayette was revered in the United States as attested by the many places called Lafayette and Lagrange, Lagrange, the name of his residence in north-central France. And because he participated in the American Revolution as a young man and lived a long time, Lafayette for decades literally embodied the memory of the struggle for American independence. When he made his farewell tour of the United States in 1824-1825, most participants in the Revolution were elderly or dead. It was widely recognized at the time that the momentous events of the war would soon be transformed from fragments of living memory into components of a national history. Lafayette himself, who understood how objects and buildings, the Bastille for example, could emblematize historical events, instructed Americans on how to produce relics that could henceforth represent the past. In August 1824, for example, during a public appearance on his tour in Lexington, Massachusetts, the site of the famous Revolutionary War Battle of April 19, 1775, a member of the crowd showed Lafayette a gun and said, it's the one which first answered the fire of the English at this place in Lexington. Lafayette and his company examined the firearm. Then, in returning it to the young man, the general counseled him to inscribe on the grip the date of April 19th, the name of the brave citizen who made such beautiful use of it, and then to place it in a box in order to preserve it from the ravages of time. The young man was touched by this advice and promised to follow it. That from an article titled Map Case for the Marquis de Lafayette, Memory and Geography in the Early Republic by Kevin D. Murphy. We can still read the inscription on a special sword carried by the Marquis. It has been preserved just as he might have hoped it would be. Here is the story. Back in France, Lafayette would surely have met his fate at the guillotine, so he fled the country in 1792. On his way to a Dutch port, he had to pass through Austrian-held territory, where he was seized and imprisoned. We're told that almost all of Lafayette's 
personal effects, which were confiscated by his captors, were returned upon his release in 1797, except his sword. Lafayette himself provided clues to the reason for this in a letter of 1828, describing it as having, as a pommel, a cap of liberty. The revolutionary nature of this sword made it desirable as a trophy of war, and it was eventually purchased from the Austrians by a Prussian diplomat and put on display in Berlin. In 1932, the diplomat's family presented that sword to Lafayette College in Easton, in the Lehigh Valley here, where it has been one of the most precious artifacts in the Marquis de Lafayette collections at the college, one that is brought out at commencements and other important ceremonies. That we learn from the Lafayette College website. Maintained in its special collections, Lafayette College has the largest single repository of letters by Lafayette to Washington, from the earliest ones written from Valley Forge in 1777 to the 1790 letter by which Lafayette sends to Washington the key to the Bastille. To mark President's Day, we had a chance to speak with Thomas Lannan, Lafayette's director of special collections and college archives, about Lafayette and his letters. The Marquis de Lafayette was a French aristocrat and um, a military officer whose services were employed and used by the Americans during the American Revolutionary War. Ultimately, he befriended George Washington and commanded American troops in significant battles during the War for Independence and was sort of seen as an equal to Washington as a military figure and was a hero of the American Revolution. He would later on play a similar role in the French Revolution, which was an equally insignificant revolution to the establishment of the Republic of France after the demise of the, the kings there. He was the hero of two worlds, is how people might refer to him. So the Marquis de Lafayette was the hero of the American Revolution and the hero of the French Revolution. He was young when he came to the States, wasn't he? He was absolutely young. Was he 17 when he, when he arrived? and he was made a major general at the age of 19, so very much a youthful figure and, and a sort of young man compared to George Washington. And it's Lafayette's youth and Washington's age that historians sometimes ponder if Lafayette sort of played the role of an adopted son to George Washington. And the esteem in which he was held, the Marquis de Lafayette, suggests that naming a college after him would reflect that esteem. Yeah, as you know, in the United States, the name Lafayette appears in almost every state. There are Lafayette streets, there are colleges, there's Lafayette Park across from the White House. Uh, and in Pennsylvania, Lafayette College stands as a college named after Lafayette. And in the college charter, it says, in memory and out of respect for the signal services rendered by General Lafayette in the great cause of freedom, the said college shall forever hereafter be known by the name of Lafayette College. It would be appropriate if there were benefactors who would make that connection and have a connection with the college. What was it that made it possible for Lafayette to have in its archives letters between Lafayette and Washington? The, the collection of Lafayette and Washington correspondence really all came at once. It was a gift of someone named Helen Fonstock Hubbard. It's, it's referred to as the Hubbard Collection, and it was donated in 1943. There's a little background that you might be interested in. Before the Hubbard acquisition in 1943, the letters were actually returned to Lafayette in, in France 
from George Washington's nephew. Uh, Lafayette wanted to see the letters, his original letters to General Washington, and they were sent back to, to France. And then eventually they were then sold and purchased by Helen Hubbard. He wanted to review them. That's an interesting thought. Yes, there, there is evidence that Lafayette edited the letters, not significantly, but he rewrote some words and made some changes to the letters in the 19th century, you know, after these 18th century letters were returned to him. So in his older years, Lafayette looked at the letters and, and sort of reinforced certain points. So you can see that Lafayette absolutely went back to read his correspondence with his, you know, his dear friend and this father figure of George Washington. I mean, they're, they're filial partners is a way to talk about it. Do you know what the connection was, why this benefactor was so interested in Lafayette? Was it because of a tie to the college? I hope to learn more about that. The, the Hubbard family is still of interest to me, but I do believe that this time period was a time when Americans, the 1940s, America is sort of taking a place on the world stage sort of during the Second World War. And I believe that the alliance between France and the United States was still of great significance as it is to this day. And I think that the, the Hubbard connection is not only related to the, the sort of fondness for Lafayette, but also it was related to ongoing relations between the nations of France and the United States at the time. So there's a, there's a lot going on here as to why these letters came to the college in 1943. But ultimately, the Hubbard family were friends of the college. And at the college, we have a large collection of material related to the Marquis, including his sword. Are we able to make an appointment with you and say, I'd like to see the Marquis de Lafayette's sword? They are available that way. We would encourage people to contact us in advance, contact the college. We have a, a website, library.lafayette.edu where you could make an appointment and learn more about the collection. We also are digitizing some of the materials so that they're available online. But absolutely, they are available to see. Another resource for those who are interested in this history, I would encourage people to go to the National Archives, has a website called founders.archives.gov, where all these letters are transcribed and can be read at any time. But the actual original artifacts are here in Easton on the campus of Lafayette College. Now tell us, how many are there and what's the range of the content? We have about 200, I think there are 200 letters between Lafayette and Washington at the college. And the letters by the Marquis de Lafayette to Washington are the most plentiful of letters to the founders. The second most would be Thomas Jefferson, who received about 100 letters, and Ben Franklin, who received about 70 letters. So Washington and Lafayette were really in touch quite a bit. And we have the letters that date from about 1777, or they're sort of their first encounter through the Revolution and through the French Revolution till about the end of the 18th century. There are more letters and other repositories you know, that are out there, but the strength of the Lafayette collection at Lafayette College are the letters between Washington and Lafayette during the, the two revolutions. In these letters, were they trading ideas about things military? Yes, the letters are they're a great subject for history. They include details of you know the day-to-day -day strategy of the actual battles of the revolution, but they also relate to international politics. Lafayette represented France, so his letters are, are really not just a letter from Lafayette, but a, but a message that represents the, the nation of France. So while they are letters between two friends, they also are letters between two states, the, the American state that was you know, struggling to achieve itself and the, the French state under the kings at the time. 
How did these letters get delivered? Yeah, that, that's a great question. Each letter, it's not standard. Each letter traveled in a different way based on where Lafayette was himself and where Washington was. Lafayette would have given the letters to entrusted people who would be nearby to deliver the letters to Washington. It wasn't, say, through the post, but through connections that the letters traveled. So each letter has its own almost kind of micro-history as to how it traveled from Lafayette to Washington. So it's hard to make a statement about how they all traveled. So, for instance, when Lafayette is stationed in Rhode Island, a letter would get to Washington through sort of the American command. However, when Marquis is in France, the letters would have to travel across the Atlantic, and there would be a series of hands involved with moving the letter. And and that aspect of them is, is lesser known as to how the letters actually traveled, but it's of great significance because the letters really document the sort of top-secret correspondence here between two military figures. In fact, some of the letters are written in code. In case a letter sort of would be turned over into the enemy's hand, there, there was a sort of code that Lafayette could use where he encrypted words using numbers. So if you actually look at the letter, it says, I have wrote to Mr. Lewingston, and then it has a series of numbers. But the series of numbers can be decoded to the name Robert R. Livingston. So the sentence then reads, I have wrote to Mr. Lewingston and Robert R. Livingston about negotiations of peace. So the name of Livingston is not actually in the letter. It was in code. And you see that Lafayette and Washington employed a sort of secret code in their correspondence at certain times when the letters were really giving away information. The idea that you have, what is it, vellum? Tell us about the paper and about the ink. The letters are all on cotton rag paper. And the the story here, what's interesting, is that paper from the 18th century was made out of sort of recycled rags. Cotton garments and things that were thrown away would then be recycled and boiled down and turned into paper made of cotton. And that paper holds up incredibly well compared to paper made decades later that's made out of the pulp of trees. So, you know, in the 19th century paper, they started making paper out of wooden tree, tree pulp. And that paper gets very acidic and brittle. But the letters here between Washington and Lafayette remain on a sort of vibrant cotton sheet. So it's really exciting that this material has held up so well. And we also store it in a temperature and humidity controlled vault where the material can be preserved for future generations. What about the handwriting? Are the letters written in a formal script? They do write in a script. And I can say that Lafayette learned to write English His English improves over the course of the correspondence, and so you do see a lot of sort of strange spellings, his early letters, that then they improve over time because Lafayette learned English while traveling to the Americas in 1777 along the way. He did not speak English before arriving here, and so the earlier letters are written in a kind of um, phonetic spelling, I would say so that he spells words as they sound, not as we would understand them. So, for instance, the word enemies could be spelled E-N-N-E-M-I-E-S with two N's. So he uses double N's for the, the hard N sound. So you, you see a lot of the unconventional spelling from the Marquis in his letters. Any observations on his part that might surprise us? There are so many themes to talk about in these letters. One letter that might be interesting is at the conclusion of the Revolution in 1783, Lafayette writes to Washington about an idea to not not abolish slavery, but to uh, start a plantation or a farm where the enslaved workers would be paid. 
He writes, I'll read you the letter. He says, Now, my dear general, that you are going to enjoy some ease and quiet, permit me to propose a plan to you which might become greatly beneficial to the black part of mankind. Let us unite in purchasing a small estate where we may try the experiment to free the Negroes and use them only as tenants. Such an example as yours might render it a general practice. And if we succeed in America, I will cheerfully devote a part of my time to render the method fashionable in the West Indies. If it be a wild scheme, I had rather be mad that way than be the thought-wise on the other tack. What Lafayette is saying is, let's end slavery. And Washington does not necessarily respond favorably. That's an important letter here. Uh, it's, it's one of the surprises, maybe, is that Lafayette, at the conclusion of the revolution, doesn't see the work as being done and, and wants to try to figure out ways to rid the world of slavery. Do scholars then come to you? Is Lafayette someone the historians are still examining? I, I think so. I mean, Lafayette is of, is of such significance that any book written about this time period likely has a sort of index point about Lafayette. But I, I think that modern scholars might be thinking about the context or cultures or time period differently than, than previous scholars where they wrote about history through single individuals. So the idea that history can be told through one person and one person's life is one way of seeing history. But I think contemporary scholars might be interested in these letters for the context and culture that they document and not simply the character of Lafayette. But there are new biographies about Lafayette that are continuing to come out. Thomas Lannan the director of special collections and college archives at Lafayette College in Easton, Pennsylvania, speaking with us about the Marquis and about the collection of letters in the college archives. For more information on the web, archives.lafayette.edu, L-A-F-A-Y-E-T-T-E, archives.lafayette.edu. Again, Lafayette College, with the largest single repository of letters by the Marquis de Lafayette to George Washington, from the earliest ones written from Valley Forge in 1777 to the 1790 letter by which Lafayette sends to Washington the key to the Bastille.